0: Hi, I'm Lina Sergiatar and welcome to Belongings, a podcast where we talk about home and have conversations about the places that create, shape, and sometimes break us. Everyone, today we have an amazing conversation ahead with activists, award winning filmmaker, trailblazer, and incredible human being all around, someone I'm so honored to call friend, the incredible Wad Al Khatib. Wad is here to talk about her groundbreaking film For Sema, a documentary that really won all of the awards and showed people how it was to live in the war in Aleppo and have that experience firsthand. She's also going to talk about the impact of this film a few years later. It's still making impact all across the world, as well as new projects that she's working on and how she thinks about belonging and home. Please enjoy this conversation with Wad Khatib. In 2009, 18-year-old Wad al-Khatib moved to Aleppo to study marketing at the University of Aleppo. In 2011, when protests against the Assad regime swept the country, Wad taught herself how to film and become a citizen journalist, determined to document the horrors of the war. During this time, Wad began reporting for Channel 4 News in the United Kingdom. The reports she made for Channel 4 News on the conflict in Syria and the most complex humanitarian crisis in the world became the most watched pieces on the UK news program and received almost half a billion views online and won 24 awards, including the 2016 International Emmy for breaking news coverage. Wad documented her whole life over five years in Aleppo as she fell in love with Hamza, a doctor, and gave birth to their first daughter, Sama, which means sky, in 2015. This footage became the basis of the feature documentary released in 2019, For Directed together with Edward Watts, For won the Prix Loïd d'Or for Best Documentary at the 2019 Cannes Film Festival, receiving a six-minute standing ovation. At the 73rd British Academy Film Awards in 2020, For became the most nominated documentary in the history of the BAFTAs with four nominations, ultimately winning the Best Documentary Award. Forsema received a nomination for Best Documentary Feature at the 2020 Academy Awards. Wad has also received several personal recognitions for her work as an activist and filmmaker, including a place in the 2020 Time 100 list of most influential people. Hello, Wad. Welcome to Belongings. Hi, Lina. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you today. We're big fans of all of your work. And I wanted to start by asking you the first question from this podcast, which is how do you define belonging? Uh, I mean, since you sent me the invitation and yeah, it's just
1: like the word itself. I think it touched me so much. After the Syrian revolution, and that was like 12 years ago in 2011, I start to feel like what? belonging mean and for me before that time I've never felt like I'm Syrian I've never felt I'm proud that I'm Syrian I've never felt that I'm part of that community or like yeah I mean my family the people around I have like good life good friends good family but I've never felt that like connection and the revolution like give me that feeling like in a very 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 strong way the revolution taught me how to be part of that or like it, it's the thing that lets me have the the belonging in my, my own life. After being displaced out of Aleppo in 2016, that meaning changed a lot and it became more and more important. Now I live in London. I can't stop thinking about in which way I can show myself and show my family and the people around me what is our belonging. Like, how can we be Syrian where we are not even allowed to be in Syria? I think this is something maybe you, you understand very well. And we've, before we before we spoke about that, for me, belonging now is everything I love and I can't touch or see or live in. It's Aleppo, the city who I left behind. It's my hometown with my family where we can't be there anymore. It's everyone who I love and every memory I still can remember. And I can't relive this physically. But in my head, in my heart, in my soul, I have a lot
0: uh, and I'm still carrying a lot with me. Thank you for that. I mean, I think it's very powerful and it resonates very deeply with me. I think what you said about How to be Syrian when you're not in Syria, it affects us personally, because we can't physically go back to Syria. It also affects when I work with young people who are young refugees in Turkey, and they're growing up never even knowing Syria, just like my daughters and your daughters also are. So I think this is an intergenerational piece where how do we actually create this idea of belonging for people who don't know or will remember the country with young people?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, I totally agree with this, especially now, as you just said, like, you know, our daughters, like, they don't know Syria. They've never, like, someone was born there and she lived there until she was one year old. But after that, she she's never been there. Tema was born outside of Syria and she have never seen syria and i think there's a lot of this which i'm trying maybe to like force on them something related to the language and how we desperately trying to let them speak arabic it also i think it comes a lot with the food and yeah. the way how i like very insist to cook every syrian food and like you know like i want them to love this food i want them to know these names and it's more about how I can let them know Syria in this symbol details we, we, we can create here, even if we are like away far, far from that land.
0: Absolutely. Our second question is the mapping of home exercise that I do with every guest as part of belongings and it's something that I've been doing with people for many years now. And so the idea is that you will draw a map of home. It can be a floor plan. It can be a photo, a picture. It can be a symbol. People have done all different kinds of things and home can be however you want to define it. It can be where you are now. It could be a memory of home and it could be an aspiration for home in the future and after you finish the drawing, you'll tell us the story of your map. So we can take about five to 10 minutes, however long you need to draw. And you can either be talking while you draw or we'll wait and then you can talk about the drawing. Okay. <laughs> Tap okay, into your creativity.
1: That's a bit hard one. You know, as you were just talking, I was thinking like which one I wanted to be, the place where I grow up. It is my parents' like house my family house or is it like the first house where me and Hamza like got married in and we lived there. And at the same time, I was like, I just want to cry and I just want to turn this off and I can't do this. Just, you know, like so much conflict feeling. And I think it's a lot about what we miss and just the idea that we're not allowed to be there. It just always, I think, hits me that if, if it was my choice my own choice of leaving, I, I would not maybe suffer the way I'm suffering now. But at the same time, like I know we're lucky enough that we made it out. Uh, we were lucky enough that all of us are safe and we have like a new life now. And, you know, like it's just so much complexity around every single feeling. The idea also that I live in London now and I have my daughters here and I have to come over a lot of feeling just to make their space here and their right of being safe in a place where they know and they love and they feel like it's their home now and I should not really like fight this feeling. I, I should also feel the same so I so I can really be able to give them what they deserve. So just so many, I think, complication around the idea of home. So yeah, I think you have a lot
0: as well, the same struggle. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is uh, It is very hard because of the memories. And I think there's this piece that you were touching upon. Like we feel a lot of guilt about feeling sad about leaving when we are very lucky. I mean, you lived through the war. But uh, my parents left earlier than you. And uh, I I see that in my parents. I see that in my aunts when they talk about, for instance, an object in their home that they miss having. But then you also don't want to talk about it because it's so small compared to what other people have lost. So you don't actually let yourself feel the mourning, which I don't think is healthy because I think it's everybody's right to feel the mourning yeah. for the big things and the small things.
1: No, I, I totally agree. Yes, But it's really hard to kind of ignore this feeling, you know. It's not something you you want to feel. And I'm sure so many people, like, I've heard that from friends and people who we know, who they have, like, kind of similar situation. But for me, like, I would love to grieve Syria, you know. I would love to grieve the time when we left or not being able to go there. But you need a lot of energy for that. But, like, the energy of keep going is harder than that. So I feel like sometimes we don't have that privilege, you know, of looking back and think about what happened because we have a lot to do, like a lot to do today, a lot to do for the future, a lot to do for our kids, a lot to do. I just feel like kind of my experience as refugee was more about I don't have that privilege to like look back and think about what happened and the idea that this is still happening in Syria until now. There's a lot of like need and problems and issues we have to keep fight for. This all like, it can't be this or that, you know, you either gonna deal with your feeling and really be able to help yourself, you know, or you have to try to like press down everything and just wake up every single day and try to find a way of, of keep going. And that's for me, like, I think the hardest thing is not like, I don't want to do this. Like, I would love to be able to just sit down and think about it. But I don't feel I, I have that privilege.
0: I mean, that is so true and powerful and sad altogether about not having the privilege to mourn, not having the, the space to grieve. I think that I absolutely feel the same too. There's no time. We have so much work to do. Yeah. And we have so much to move forward. And it's hard to have the time and space to look back. And also, I think
1: you you have the same way when, you know, like with Karam House and all these kids who you are in communication with, like, there's a lot of people who are relying on you emotionally, you know, and this is not something will allow you like to take your space because it's not just about me being happy or like hopeful. It's about so many people who they won't be able to feel good if, if I was not as well. So it's it's a lot of like complication. Yeah. And I don't know, I wish just we can grieve all together.
0: But I know also, like not everyone is ready to go through this as well. Yeah. I just came back from Turkey last week. And in addition to all of the complexities you're talking about, and the idea of being a refugee, the idea of trying to find space to belong, the kids are going through so much in terms of finding very a lot of hostility in their daily lives in Turkey, their daily lives at school. And that is also an additional piece that has nothing to do with Syria, but it has everything to do with being displaced. And yeah. that is part of their everyday struggles is, you know, am I being bullied at school? Do I feel safe on the street? Am I able to go to school and university? Will I be able to find a job? All of these actually add on to the layers that push everything else away.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, it's really hard and you don't know where you should focus more and what to prioritize because like every couple of months things like get up on the list and other stuff who you've been focusing on like for a long time, you have like it's less, so suddenly it's became less less important. So yeah, it's it's really the situation and everything's happening is just adding more layers of complexity to the situation. Um, I'm not sure if this is a very good drawing. Show
0: show us, yes. Tell Um, us about your drawing.
1: So I decided to draw the garden of our house in Aleppo, me and Hamza. And the reason why we chose that house, I mean, we didn't have that so many options, but I saw the flower, which called bougainvillea, coming out from like a garden of a house. And the house was left with no no one was living in, in that area, in that like specific building. And there was like some damage around. And the moment I saw the bougainvillea from outside the garden, I was like, this is the house I want. And I went to Hamza, I was like, please, this is the house I want. And I had zero confidence that we were able to make it and like get the house and fix it and do all the stuff to be able like to be a place for living. And then Hamza started like going around asking people who this like house belongs to because there's no like anyone in the, in the whole building. And then we were able to get like a number of a cousin to the house. And then he came a couple of days later and he showed us the house. And for me, it's just like, it struck me so much because in so many ways, like it reflects a lot of my family house which is in another town in, in Syria. Hamza didn't believe me because, you know, like we met after the revolution. he have never been to my family house, but I kept telling him like, this looked like my family house. And that's why I wanted this. And in the garden, we didn't have bougainvillea, but we had another flower, which has roses. And it was a white, but also was like going out over, over the building. So this is here, the, the bougainvillea. And here we had like kind of like set of barbecue, which is like handmade. And we had similar one in our house there, with my family house. We had like a fountain, but it's not a full circle fountain; it's half circle. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that also in this house, I was like Hamza, like we had in uh, in my family house, like a half fountain. (laughs) It's not even like a fountain, so it's like was so many things. Kind of remind me a lot with that, and also here, like here where where we used like sit down and eat. The kitchen is just right here, which is also similar to my family house where we had a big door to the what we call it like balcony and it's just like a garden, ground floor garden. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just like right in front of the kitchen. We have another door here, like where it goes like to the living room and this is like a big window here. And then we have another like a, the back door of the house, which led to another street. And yeah, it's just like like a beautiful space and was like very kind of Hard for me even to just this because like it was shelling and bombing most of the time, and at the same time, like you wanna breathe, you know you don't wanna like just try to sit down in in outside and enjoy a meal or like have friends over or like doing something sometimes even just like you know like lay down on the sofa or in on on a chair and just like watch the sky, which was sometimes tricky because there was like always like helicopters or aircraft or shelling. But for me, like that house, like it's not ours, you know, so we rented that for, for that years, but I always hope, you know, and my, my main hope is to be able to go back one day there and to get this house to be mine, like, you know, to, to buy that house. I know this is very like far away dream because of everything, but I really hope one day we can be there
0: again. Uh, One of my favorite, I mean, I have many favorite moments in For Sama, but one of my favorite moments is about the flowers and about checking the flowers, even when the snow and checking the flowers after the bombing and having, making sure that you took a piece of the plant with you. And that uh, plant was, or the tree was such a big part of the representation of home to you.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, like always people ask me after the film, like what happened to this plant? and i always feel like so heart breaking heart broke because i at that time when i took it i thought like oh yeah we're going to make it out and easily like this plant will be out with me and that was such a like important thing for me just you know like for this plant to to be alive but also i i don't know where was this plant like ended up because we we thought also we were kind of a little bit naive that even leaving would be you know we just left and The way out was around eight days of waiting in minus three degree with a lot of threats about, you know, will the regime arrest someone or not? And the buses and so many people and so many issues and they like the displacement had to like stop a couple of times. So after we I arrived to Idlib, I was like, Oh my god, where is the plant? Like I didn't even remember it, you know, because at that time we had so much things to think about and i always like try to kind of tell people that yeah like that that plant didn't make it but i've tried so hard and i'm still trying to plant another one from the same kind of flower in my house here in london and i've been here now for 4 years and i've tried until last year i've tried to plant that 5 times and it didn't make it because i mean you know now you're in the us and the bougainvillea is an amazing like flowers you can see it, like in LA California yeah. like there's a lot of that there but here in London it's too cold for that yeah one year and a half ago I was able to get a good one and it's still alive until now I have it here and it's like just like great you know like it's it's goes out in the snow and then it's like start to die and then I I get it in in, in the winter I get it out in summer so it's now. It's alive. It's not the same one, but
0: we can make a lot of hope in different ways. Absolutely. And I see that here. I mean, I'm in Chicago, so we have the similar problem of not being able to have the same kinds of plants as we had in Syria. I do not have a green thumb at all, but my mother-in-law, who's originally from Hama, does. And she has the most, inc- I mean, she's been in the U S for many, many years, decades, but she has the most amazing plants that she, with time, she makes mluchie. She does wow. all of these plants. Like, and this is in Chicago, the, verbena, el malice, she does all of these things and it's all going in and out even the small oranges um that yeah. she makes from it the jam so there's hope what you can with time we can all acclimate <laughs> So, uh, this is a beautiful map. I wanted to go to talking a little bit more about Forsama and for the work you did around Forsama. I mean, when we talked in your bio about all of the recognition you received and the awards and that award season was very, very powerful. One of the things that I really admired about that time when you were advocating for Forsama and you were being recognized for it. You never missed an opportunity to actually speak up against the crimes that were being done in Syria, whether it was in Cannes and you and Edward and Hamza holding up stop bombing hospitals, which that campaign you did many times all across the world to have that impact. And I wanted to talk about your dress at the Oscars. Can you tell us a little bit about the dress, about the poetry on the dress, and how did you come up with that idea to actually even within the dress that you wore to the awards that you embodied? embodied physically the message of resistance and hope to the world.
1: Yeah, like at some point when the film was out, like I didn't consider myself like a filmmaker. And even now when I consider myself like I have my career and now I'm I'm a, like officially a filmmaker. I'm doing like films more. And um, with all of this, I still feel like at the first place, I'm a Syrian woman who tried to do something to protest. And I'm an activist. So for me, like, whatever I'm doing, whatever film I'm going to do in the future or I'm choosing now, it was always for me, like, in the back of my head, you know, how? what about change? What about freedom? What about the values we, we carried from the Syrian revolution? And how can this affect back to Syria? And how can this also, like, spread the world more? And for this, like, for me, can... Like, we didn't plan this, you know, like at the day of the, the festival, it was very clear for me, like, I want to do something to tell the world about Syria and about these crimes. And we did it. We did it in a very, like, simple way. And we tried to to see how much, like, amazing places we were able to reach, how many people from different countries we were able, like, to, to break through their, their hearts, their knowledge, their mind sometimes. And... Everything of this is very important for us to, to be able like to deliver a message. The Oscar work for us was an amazing platform and we really hoped so so much just to win, to be able to get on that stage and take the sixty seconds to tell the world about what happened and maybe to tell Assad directly, you know, like, you thought you won, no you didn't. And for me the dress was like a plan B in case we were not able to to get on the stage and I want my message and my statement to be out, uh, not just for everything I listed before, but more importantly, was the for for the Syrian people. As for this, like a couple of days uh, or like two weeks before the Oscar, we started to think about what can we do there, and we come up with this idea of like Hamzami and another friend who is also in the US. We were like, okay, let's let's think about the dress, and my friend' thoughts was like, I don't want you to make it to the worst. 10 dresses on the Oscar. So mm-hmm. let's make sure you can have like a good dress. Mm-hmm. And this idea started to like, like develop more about what can we write. And this is kind of part of the revolution, the signs we had before. So let's make it like an Arabic, like letters and let's try to deliver something simple. And like, it is about the Syrian revolution. And for this, we came up with the sentence, we dared to dream and we won't regret dignity. Part of that sentence, the second part, we don't regret dignity, was written on a wall in Daraa. And it is like, we call it the Syrian revolution. We we called it from the early days, it's the dignity revolution. And it was big part of what we were asking for and what we still like hope and looking for and, and trying to do, our dignity. So I just felt that that phrase was something like presents who we are and what we were trying to do and why. And when the pictures start to come out and I start to see how many Syrians felt that this is also their voice and what they want even to feel themselves. It was just something I think really very overwhelming for me. And until now, like I still feel like maybe we didn't want the Oscar, but we did want so many things. And one of that was like our our voice and and that day until today.
0: Absolutely. And it was a show-stopping dress. Even for people who didn't know Arabic, it was very clear that there was something very special about this dress. And it was very, very beautiful to have the word dignity and to have the word dream in it and very powerful. So we can share a picture for people who haven't seen the dress or forgot. We will share a picture when we post this episode so people can see it. It was beautiful.
1: Yeah. And Lena, you know, like I had choices to go to so many like big designers and people who have like amazing, like people would dream to go to these people to get dresses from them. But for me, it was like, it meant so much that my friend who was refugee in Turkey to be like, you know, which she didn't have like a shop or she didn't have like that long list of dresses she had done before. But she was like, this is what she did at university and this is what she loved to do. And I would say like in a magic time, she was able to do it with, so much love and so much like care and the dress miraculously made it to, to LA like one day before the Oscar uh so it was just like everything happened was really like with love and passion and just a lot of like belonging you know we we wanted to show our identity who we are and even the color we we chose with this words was like the the color of the bougainvillea which is yeah. also for me something like i feel like it's I think a lot of what we are trying to do in every step is just to find home. And we find home in different smell or look or things we say, things we eat. But it was always for us like trying to create this Syria, you know, in, in
0: different way and in different place. That's absolutely beautiful. It's been a few years since Forsama was released and over six years since you left Aleppo. Can you tell us a little bit, what should people know about what's happening in Syria right now? I mean, I think the most important thing that this is not over, you know, it it
1: didn't finish yet. There are people in Syria until now, as we speak, are being threatened to be displaced again, threatened to be shelled or killed or arrested again. And this is by the same perpetrator, which is Assad. And I think that's very, very important to keep like saying because people think, oh, the war is over. Oh, like people now should go back or like a lot of issues about the situation, even with the Syrian people who are living inside Syria now under the regime control. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of like crimes still being committed until now. And if this has not been in the news anymore, that doesn't mean this is not happening. Um,
0: Absolutely.
1: And also, I think like a lot about governments and politicians now. I'm not going to say a lot because it's not a lot, but it's worrying us that there are some people who are trying to normalize this relationship with Assad and legitimize you know this relationship if it was back. Twelve million people in Syria, like inside and outside, have been displaced because of Assad. Assad is the main reason why all of these people left. If there's no in Syria, but Assads still in Syria. These people left because of Assad and no one can get back until Assad is not like gone, you know, like it should be under accountability and they're like low and they're like real circumstances for people to go back. And when we ask about this, we're not asking about a free country, a place where people can be equal and dignity and all of this. We're not asking for these things to be ready. We're just asking for a real change so people can go back and fight in a proper way. Because with all the circumstances, you know, like, Lena, maybe some people doesn't really understand this because, yeah, it's hard to understand. If you or me or anyone who have worked against the regime decided today to go back, it's not about like you can go back, but you won't be one foot inside Syria. You're going to be arrested at the airport. You will be disappeared right away. Your family and everyone inside or, or outside will be in danger as well. And I understand why people can't really and like imagine this because like no human being can imagine the level of the violence and the crimes that we all have been like threatened to happen to us or like to our families, but this is really important to understand because like this is not a fiction film we are watching, this is not a series of eight seasons where like you know like not Game of Thrones, this is a reality, and sometimes this reality is harder than anything you could imagine in any hollywood film so this is still happening people still until today been arrested in the streets of damascus or aleppo or even northwest or east of syria so many people are lives in camps and you are taking care of so many kids and you, you know the situation you know how much need these people like have and how much also lack of everything and just I don't know where to start, you know, but like every one of us can do something, whether it's big or small, whether it's with refugees outside or in people at the border, whether there's so many options and any small things we can do would make difference.
0: Absolutely. And I think what you're saying, I mean, we've been saying this for many years about just because something is not in the news doesn't mean that it's over. Or just because maybe if the bombing is not at the intensity of what it used to be five, six years ago, that means that things are better. I think that the the bar for some reason with Syria is so low that that, you know, if it's not every single day being bombed by airstrikes, then it must be the situation is better. But people forget about all of the millions of people that have been displaced. And even the people that have not been displaced live without dignity, without freedom, with a lot of fear. And it doesn't matter what your political views are. You're living like that in Syria, no matter who you are. And some reason it became this is almost acceptable, an acceptable existence where it's not acceptable at all for the people inside or outside,
1: yeah, and you know like even with the minimum basic needs you know of of people life in I'm talking now about food and water and electricity and like all of this is not I don't know how to describe this but like it's not existed at all you know we're talking about a country who like I don't know I've never felt I needed something before the revolution in my in my life as fifteen or 18 year old, you know, like we had electricity, we had water, we had like good life, but what we were looking for was like something more than the basic needs. Now, after all these years, even the basic needs, like people are not eating meat for a month, maybe, or like, it's so much worse. And this is because of Assad. It's not because of the war, you know? And it's just the idea that people should always like think that, oh, if, if there's no shelling, things are are okay. No, because people, when they start protesting, there was no shelling. The shelling happened as consequences of people standing and daring to ask for, for better life for them. So we are back to 2011 and even worse. And the reason of all of this still existed inside Syria. So how things would be changed if Assad's still there?
0: Absolutely. I know that you've been screening for Sema recently. I heard about a series of screenings in Istanbul and other places. What is the impact of this film now? To be honest, like I've still very moved and affected and
1: overwhelmed with the reaction that this film is is making everywhere. And now, you know, like, as I understand, like after I became outside and I, I understand like the situation and the industry and films and like documentaries or even movies, like usually the normal circle of any film would be like one year. Whenever the Oscar is gone, the film is almost like, you know, like circled to to a different level, which is less interesting, less like attention, less people like watching this. And new films come over and then like a new way of attention, like get to, to different places. For some, it was just very surprising until this single day, you know, when we are talking about different countries, different people, and different topics, which is touching. Today in Turkey, like the racism and the way Syrian people are living there is very, very hard and very difficult. And we've been trying to release the film in Turkey for a long time. Uh, We were not able to do this. And now we have this chance uh, where I think it really, really, it should not surprise me, but it surprised me again. And I think this is more like about having hope, you know, that we still can do something to change people's minds and hearts. With this series of like screening we had in Istanbul and a couple of ones in Gaziantep, where there's a lot of Syrians who lives there, and also with the hope that we're going to have so many more screenings, hopefully, in universities, in other cities in Turkey. We hope to be able like to help a little bit the Turkish people to understand more why there are so many Syrians in Turkey, and also to help the Syrian people to give them a way of explaining what happened in an accessible way for them not to go through I hope, like maybe their own trauma and try to use this as a way of explaining more why we are here. And, you know, like one of the comments came from in the screening in Gaziantep, a Syrian doctor who I think she's been in Turkey now for maybe 10 years, and she said, if people always ask me, like she she came to Turkey, she qualified and she is working as a doctor in a hospital. And there's still some people always like annoying her with the question, like, why are you here? Why you don't go back to mm-hmm. Syria? And she said, like, when I was watching the film, I was, this is like touching me a lot because it's an answer for these people why I am here. But it shocked me at the end more when I felt that this is an answer for me because when I always say why I am here, this is like an amazing answer for myself, like satisfying answer that why I'm here. And I think just, you know, to see how people can relate and to see how people can see themselves in this story, although it's one single story of of one family, but it is presents a lot of stories. And I understand at the end of the day, like as a filmmaker and also as Syrian, there's no one single story can tell not even 1% of what happened in Syria. But I think all of this like small pieces, you know, can at least show something and save something because what we are going through now that we start to forget, people start to totally forget or ignore or not even remember something. And also we have new, a whole new generation who they were not even alive to remember. And all of this, I think, tools, you know, like, Like the film would help a lot of people to understand and to pass this knowledge and to remind like the older generation themselves and to tell the new generation about what happened. Uh, it was just really very, very, very overwhelming experience for me after all this like years, now four years since the film was out. The film still have the same impact as the first day in South by Southwest when I should have met you and unfortunately, we were not able to see each
0: other. Absolutely. I remember that day that one of our mutual friends said, you have to meet Wad. And we were literally, you arrived and I left. And that was incredible. I think, you know, what you're saying is very powerful for me to hear because I remember at the beginning of the revolution when I was writing a lot and I was writing so fast I thought that I had to tell the world what was happening in Syria every day, every week I was writing an article. And it was all about all of these stories of all of these places. And you start in Daraa, and then I'm talking to people in Hamas, I'm talking to people in Idlib, I'm talking to people in Aleppo, and then it becomes a story of refugees and all of this sequence. And then you, I began writing a lot less As time passes, but then you go back to those early pieces, which at the time when I was writing it, I was thinking the most important thing is telling people what's happening now. And now the power of all of that work, the power of your work is actually we never thought that it was going to be this tool, like you're saying, for memory, this tool for to stand the test of time, that this is your documentary for Sema is almost like an archive for the future for many, many years to come. Probably after both of us are no longer here like when people talk about the archive of of a war this piece will stand that this is what happened and here is the proof and you were there and you did it you were able to tell this story and have this footage that will be the memory the collective memory of what happened in Syria and in Aleppo yeah no
1: definitely yes of
0: course you don't and think about that when it's happening obviously when you were around no, no, in Aleppo no, no. Even, under even the now, bombs actually. you know yeah you don't even
1: like even now, I, I I think we have also like some issues. I think in Syria about not be able even to be proud of what we've done or with ourselves and with all of this. And I think just like all of this, like giving me so many reason to feel like like yeah, I did something. Like I don't know if I would do it in any different situation, but with this situation, I'm really proud that I was able to to get something like done in this way and to be able just to give so many other people like tools, you know, like it's my story and my personal story, but like it tells so much about everything happened. And for me, like as much as I was like, you know, like I don't want this to be about me. You know, I I was one person who was there, but then I understood how much strength, you know, the one personal story of someone who witnessed this and filmed this, like how much this could make so many difference. So I think I've learned so much through this experience. And I feel more and more, you know, how like I was really able to, to do something really different and, and unique at the same time.
0: Absolutely. I wanted to ask how Sama and Taima are doing and also how are other people from the film doing right now? Afra, Naya, the families. Give us an update on how everybody is. Yeah. So
1: Sama and Tayma um, are really good. Sama now is seven years old. Taima is five and a half. Yeah, they speak English very well, much, much, much better than mine. They speak a little bit of Arabic and we're still struggling a lot to teach them more. That's one of my mission now in life. And I'm a bit hard sometimes. And sometimes I feel like I should just let it go for now and be like more easy with them. They got school here. Like everything is is good. They know very well where they are from. They know very well so many like Syrian food. So it's like, it's, it's great. I'm, I'm so kind of enjoying and as much as I'm struggling, you know, with two little girls in this age, which is really hard to manage with my work and Hamza and everything. So yeah, we all good. Afra, Naya and their family also here in London, which is also like, I feel so lucky that we were able like to be close to each other, even by like distance, you know, like we meet every couple of days. We do a lot of stuff together here in the hard time, you know, like the anniversary of the revolution and the anniversary of displacement, we always are able to do something like to relive this moment, but also like to process it, but also to give more awareness and try like to make this like more valuable for other people to understand. Yeah, other people also like who maybe not so many people like knew their names, but they were all the time around... Ola is in France. And so many people like we're still in contact with. I think there is like a weird relationship. It happened between all of us, you know, which is no matter where you are now, no matter how life changed in this situation, in the new situation. But there is like a very important link we we all have and we all feel toward each other. And this is one change, whatever like happened in our life.
0: That's really beautiful. I'm so happy everybody's doing well and I'm so happy Afra is nearby you. That must be very comforting. And uh, I'm glad to hear that Sama and Taima are doing really well. I wanted to ask you about Action for Sema. So in 2019, you founded Action for Sema, an advocacy campaign that seeks accountability for the perpetrators of the war crimes in Syria that specifically targets civilians and hospitals. You talked a little bit about this before. Can you tell us about what Action for Sema is up to these days? How is the campaign doing? And what are some of your projects that you're working on?
1: Yeah, so the campaign is doing really well. And, you know, when we started that, it was more as reaction to the amazing questions of people, you know, about what can we do. Uh, So the reaction of the people, let us like, we have to set up something because we have to answer these questions. And this answer should be like realistic and as an action. And like, you know, there's a lot of like difficulties within this, especially that at that year, it was the year when we became refugees in the UK. So we didn't even understand the situation like outside, like, you know, and how much people can do. So we had like a lot of questions, but we were able just to to manage a lot of stuff at the same time and with help, you know, with so many other friends and organization and people who were really passionate about finding this answer about what can we do. So the campaign is still happening until now, and we have more requests to show the film, or ways to participate with other also like NGOs and people who are now became partners with us on this years. We have like several milestones memories throughout the years. We have like a set of permanent events we do Mm -hmm. every December to recognize the anniversary of the displacement. We build this uh, exhibition which we still try like develop more and more every year where we present some items from people who've been displaced, we tell the story behind these items. We try to like bring any more ways of remembering and it's it's really fits so well with belonging because it's it's a lot about how can we create this like small Syria, you know even when we are yeah. not there anymore. We have also the anniversary of al quds hospital attack, which is April, which last year we were we did this campaign with Ukraine as well where hospitals in Ukraine and hospitals in Syria had a stand in the same like day with masks of stop-bombing hospitals. And then a lot of other hospitals joined us in France, Germany, the U.S., the U.K., and other places. We're trying to raise more awareness about attacking hospitals in Syria and, and now in Ukraine as well. And this is just like something, you know, we, we hope to be able to manage something, even on politicians' uh, level when we do a lot of like roundtables and events to talk with decision makers. And it's just so hard, you know, because for us, like since Cannes, which you just mentioned in 2019, we had that like stop bombing hospitals campaign. And now we had to add Ukraine to to the list when we are talking. And it was also weird because at that time we were talking about things happened in the past things were still happening in Ghouta, Eastern Ghouta and other areas in Syria. And now after a while, like it became, even after the uh, people in Eastern Ghouta were uh, displaced, we tried to say that we need accountability for these things that happened in the past or might happen today in Idlib. But then suddenly Ukraine happened and this became more like a serious conversation, not for us, you know, but for the people who we were trying all the time to go and talk about this. And they were like, Oh yeah, like it's something happened. We have to find a way of investigating this in the past. And suddenly this became another like topic. It's happening right now in different place and the same techniques and the same like strategy of of attacks. So there's a lot of work happening now between us also and, and Ukraine. And yeah, we have like so many plans and we really hope to be able to continue this work because it's very necessarily, it's happening in a very different way. And also it's searching out so many people.
0: Absolutely. And I think that one of the powerful parts about it, and it's very sad to know the lessons that we learned in Syria, people didn't listen, the world didn't listen, nobody really intervened on behalf of the Syrian people. And we see that now it's happening in other places by the same perpetrators. And it will continue to happen as long as nobody is standing up to change this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's really very heartbreaking to watch, you know, Ukraine and what's happening. Yeah. And I just feel like we all have a stake in in, in that and we all have like a duty and responsibility toward Ukraine today as we have toward Syria. Like, I don't want to say in the past because we still have that long way of, of accountability and seeking for our own rights now. But I think we all share, you know, the same goals and the same, like, hope that we all have to be to be free and we all
0: like deserve justice and, and dignity. Absolutely. I will encourage everybody to check out Action for Sama to see your the work and to follow the work. It's very important and to participate in some of these anniversaries and the events that you hold across the year. I have one more question for you before we go into the rapid fire questions. I know that you're working on a new documentary and you have new projects on the way. Could you tell us about the work that you're doing now? Yeah, I'm really excited about this
1: new project. I've never expected to be like, you know, as excited as I am now. Uh, So the new documentary, it's about the Olympics refugee team, which is a group of refugees who are trying to find a new way for them to keep going. Like to, who also have the opportunity to compete in one of the highest platforms, sport platforms. I've been working on this now for almost two years. And the film, hopefully, is like on the lock soon. So hopefully it will be released this year. And just for me, was very, very important and very different at the same time. Like on each level, it is like really different. One level was like in Forsema I was alone filming. I had no like sound people. I was the producer. I was the camera woman. I became also the director later with Edward. But as the process, I, I had to do everything by myself, learning the very basic process. And then in this project, which is, I'm in the middle of like three, four crews who are like filming and so many people involved. And also like, I was just so excited about learning and working at the same time. And for me on another level, like for Sama was amazing in every detail on on that journey, you know, like making the film, the editing, and then the release of the film, and then the campaign. And with this one, like one thing was not maybe very good for me that I wasn't able to realize where I am after, after for Sama. Because for me, I'm still inside Syria. I'm still trying to work around what happened, what's still happening until now. So even realizing that I became a refugee, it was not something I was able to do. So there was a lot like, you know, about this. And then this film allows me to get to know other refugees and to go through their experience and to let me reflect on my own journey as well. And for me, like when I started this, it was more like I just left Syria now. And going through this project allow me to understand a lot what me as a refugee, like what I'm going through now. I have five amazing people who are in the film. Uh, One Syrian boy who is in uh, Jordan, in al-Azraq camp. I have two Iranian athletes, a girl and a boy, who are amazingly, like, I, I don't know really the right word because I'm just so impressed on everything they were doing. And I have also one woman from South Sudan who is a refugee in Kenya now, who has also a little boy. And There is part of her story which touched me a lot because it's related to what I've been through with my daughter. And the last guy is from Cameroon. He lives in the UK and he's an athlete and a nurse who was working very hard in COVID. So, I mean, these five guys, I would say like they changed my life now and they helped me a lot as, as a refugee, being understanding where I am now and what I want to do in my life.
0: Wow, that's incredible. What's the name of the film? So we're still like debating that. Uh, okay. So I'm going to keep it for, for later. Well, and it'll be coming out this year? Hopefully, yes. Yeah. We're almost like finishing. We'll be up. waiting for it. We'll be waiting for it to watch it. And it sounds very exciting. I'm so happy that you have this project. And they're very lucky to have you as a filmmaker on oh, this. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll go into our rapid fire questions, which are mostly questions I ask all of our guests every episode. And there's one extra question for you. So we'll go right into it. The first question is complete this sentence. Home is where? Um, I don't know yet. Okay. Tell us about a belonging you have at home that you cherish.
1: The flower. It's not from home exactly, but it's for me. Like I see Syria and I see my house in Syria in this one.
0: What's one piece of advice you would give to a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place?
1: Just don't give up. Uh, Try in different ways. And whenever you can't find anything, just hold on to the future. You're going to
0: find it, hopefully. Give us a list of three unexpected places that people must visit in your hometown. Oh, wow. Ah, That's really hard. Uh, My town can be, it can be London, it can be Aleppo, it really can be anywhere. It's basically whatever you want. It's very funny because whenever you ask me this, I always think about Syria.
1: I'm not in the process of considering London my home, although I feel this sometimes, definitely. Okay, so in Aleppo, definitely the castle. Number two is a secret place we used to go to, to like take a, a breath and just enjoy the kind of the old city. And that place was under Sniper, so of course no one goes now, but hopefully like when everything goes well, I will mark that place and tell people about it. The third place is in my hometown. We have a very beautiful mountain and it's actually very close to Hama and it has just an amazing view and amazing like environment, trees and forests and this kind of stuff.
0: Beautiful. What dish tastes like home to you? I know you talked oh, a lot about all cooking. All the
1: food, all the Syrian food. We cook every single thing. Any like kind of melukhiyya, um, safarjaliya, yabra, mahshi.
0: Yeah, a lot of food. Oh, yeah. I just had the most amazing safarjaliya at Khan al-Wazir in Istanbul. Oh, wow. Next time you go, you have to go. It's like you're eating in Aleppo. No, no, no. They I, have no I don't Khabar like that.
1: Keres. I don't like that. I want to... Do that for you. So hopefully when we meet, uh, hopefully yes. you're going to come to London, but I will invite you to a very, I think
0: you're going to say this is better than Khan El <laughs> well, I have no doubt. <laughs> I can't wait for that. Wad, thank you so much for being on Belongings. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. And I would love for everybody to follow you, follow your work, follow Action for Sama. We'll be sharing a lot of links and it's just incredible to watch your journey. It's really an honor to know you what you've done with your work, with your storytelling, being a woman and really defying all of the odds and, and reaching the top levels of your field is always an inspiration to me. And I always wish you all the best.
1: Thank you so much, Lena. It was a pleasure for me to talk to you. And I always really feel like You know, as two women from Syria who share a lot, I just feel like it's an honor for me just to have this hour chatting with you. So thank you so much for having me and for
0: everything you are doing as well. Thank you. I always love speaking with Wad because she leaves me inspired and feeling hopeful about the future through her sheer strength. Next, I speak to Muhammad, a young Syrian in Turkey, who talks about his journey to finding belonging through growth and change. Although he felt isolated, like an island, at the beginning of his displacement, he eventually finds his community. I found my conversation with him to be deeply moving, and I hope you do as well. Hi, Muhammad. Welcome to Belongings. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. So, I wanted to ask you a lot of questions about your journey, about your story, and about how you think about the word belonging at home. So, my first question to you is, what does belonging mean to you?
2: Yeah, it's maybe this is the most meaningful word for me. Because if you don't have belonging, then you don't really have character. Because if you don't belong to anything, you will have that feeling of depression or maybe sadness. For me, I don't know where I belong. I don't count myself as someone Syrian, or Turkish, or anything. uh, Maybe it's not only related to your citizenship. It also can uh, be related uh, to other things, uh, like the community, like the Islamic community, community or the Christian community. community, But I really uh, don't feel like I belong or relate to any of those. I don't
0: think that I'm
2: related with any of those.
0: So, did you always feel like
2: this your whole life, of not feeling belonging? No. Maybe I just started by that when I went to Turkey. Maybe I just started when I went went to Turkey. um, When I I was in Syria, I just think of my cousins. Those were the people around me. And they liked me. (laughs) And we did many things together. So I felt like I belonged to them. But after I lost them and spent my childhood and teenage years here in Turkey, it makes me feel like I'm not sure I belong to them anymore. Because also, they are different than me. Because we didn't live the same experiences. They are in Syria, and they don't know what it means to be a refugee. And I know what it means to be a refugee. It's what made me Muhammad now, as did the war. Everything I lived, maybe even talking with you now made me. They did not live like me. That's why I started feeling like I'm so different than them. I'm not like them anymore. So I started losing that feeling of belonging with them. That belonging feel about them.
0: I'm going to ask you to draw a map of your home. And you can think of your home of any place in your mind. It could be your home at the present moment. It could be in the past. Or it can be in the future. It can be a symbol. And after you make your drawing, then I'm going to ask you to tell us a story of your mapping of home. Mm-hmm. You can take a minute, like five to ten minutes, is Okay.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. That's it.
0: Tell us about
2: your map of home. I drew an ocean. I feel like I belong to an ocean, even though I don't live near the ocean, and I never did. But I feel like the water plays a big role in my life. I also drew an island. I feel like we as people are like close islands. Each person has their own island. I also drew palm trees on my island because I feel like they are Arabic and I am an Arab. I guess what I can say is that I feel like an island and I'm surrounded by other islands around me. I would say there is music playing in the background because I do feel like I belong to music. I wish I was there now. If I look at this map, it's my home of the future. It's where I want to be.
0: That's (laughs) good. I like it. Living on
2: your island. Yeah.
1: Can you tell us about your experience at Karam House? Um,
2: Now we come to the good part. Karam House enriched my life. I've been here a long time. It's part of who I am. But if you ask anyone about me, they'll tell you, I changed a lot here. I think the best thing that ever happened to me is Karam House. First, I met a lot of people here. If it wasn't for Karam House, I think I would have been a copy-paste version of any other person. And I'm so against that. Here I was exposed to different people, different ideas and different opinions. Here I was encouraged to read, and learn, and discuss. I changed completely from who I was before. I grew. I gained so much here. I gained friendships. We connect once a week, sometimes twice a week. In the end, I feel like any place you go to, you can take what you want and grow through it and leave behind what you don't like. But at Karam House, I took everything.
1: Okay, well, Hamad, I'm going
0: to go into the rapid-fire questions. These are the ones I ask every guest. So the first question is, complete this sentence. Home is where?
1: I find myself.
0: Second question: If you had to leave your home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be? My mom. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's the first person said a person. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Um, what dish tastes like home to you? Mm-hmm.
1: When I first come to here, after five months I was, uh, far away from my
0: family, I just ask it for mlochi. And mlochi is like uh, we have to translate that. It's a very special Syrian dish. It's not really not only in Syria, but it's a spinach like plant. Yeah. My last question is, I mean, I'm sure you're gonna have a good answer for this. Is what's a book or books that you love and have recommended to your friends?
2: Maybe animals farm. Yeah. Why? Because it's the same of what happened in Syria actually. The same, the same, the same, more than
1: you think about. It because one will make a revolution and then he will make the same mistake as the old one makes. That's why read Animal Farm and you will know the full
2: story of Syria. I know that
0: answer. Thank you so much, Muhammad, for being on the podcast.
2: Welcome. (laughs) I
0: really wish you all the best of luck in your studies and your future and finding your island. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard. It's so expensive.
2: (laughs) It's
0: very hard. but You know what? Everybody's searching for their own island in their own way. Yeah. Thank you, Muhammad.
2: Welcome. (laughs)
0: Thanks for listening to Belongings. I'm your host, Lina Sergi-Attar. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Majzoub and Noor al Ghrawi. Episode research by Ghania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleyman Faour. Music is Inni Nimnih by Mashru'o Leila. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Belongings on Instagram at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit KaramFoundation.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time.